This is Tending Seeds, and I'm your host, Sarah, talking to you about homesteading, gardening, and herbalism. Hi, friends. Happy April. We are definitely getting loads of rain this month here, and I'm guessing you probably are too. It's been a very muddy start to the spring as we get garden areas ready to plant and try to finish building a chicken coop here. Lots of good projects, but never enough hours in the day. And I'm sure you can probably relate. That's a pretty common theme for farmers and homesteaders during this season and all year long, if we're being honest, but especially in spring. So I hope you're tackling your to-do lists and that your seedlings are doing well. I know personally, I'm counting down the weeks until our last frost date so that I can really start transplanting things out in earnest. I'm trying very hard to resist the urge to go ahead and just gamble a little bit and put some things out now. But anytime I've done that in the past, Tennessee always manages to surprise me with, you know, one or two last frosts and even sometimes a freak, you know, snowstorm in April. So trying to resist the urge. Anyway, for today's episode, I am so excited to bring you this conversation with Bevan Cohen. Bevan is an author, herbalist, and educator. He offers lectures and workshops across the country, teaching about a ton of different subjects, including the benefits of locally grown and wild harvested plants, seed saving, and oil production. He's the author of The Artisan Herbalist, as well as the just-released Complete Guide to Seed and Nut Oils, which is going to be the focus of our discussion today. And he's also one of the founders of the Michigan Seed Library Network, which you'll hear about in today's episode as well. I loved getting to chat with Bevan about his new book and all of his wonderful projects. I hope you enjoy this episode and will feel inspired to try to press some oils of your own. Bevan, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really great to talk to you today. In your own words, can you kind of just introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Of course. Uh, first, Sarah, I'd just like to say thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm really excited to have this opportunity to chat with you. To just tell you a little bit about myself briefly, um, I'm the owner of Small House Farm, which is a sustainable homestead project in central Michigan. We are on a dead-end dirt road across the street from 1,100 acres of forest. So aside from the gardening that we do, we're also able to do quite a bit of foraging for our food as well as for our medicine. Uh, we grow herbs and seed crops here on the farm. Uh, the seeds we do offer commercially, uh, retail via our website, but a lot of it is for historical preservation work as well. Um, so we grow a lot of different interesting and unique crops around here to, to save their seeds and the stories that come with them as well. I live here with my wife, Heather, and our two sons, Elijah and Anakin. Elijah just celebrated his 13th birthday. That's what we just did. Um, and he is quite a little helper around here. He's an awesome little guy. He's been working on some corn breeding projects of his own. And so not only do I have the opportunity to teach my children, uh, but I learned so much from them as well. So there's always a little adventure going on here at Small House for sure. Yeah, that's amazing. We're definitely going to talk about all the stewardship you're doing and the, the seed projects and everything else. The main thing I wanted to have you on the show to talk about, though, is your book about seed and nut oil pressing, which when I came across that, that was just such a unique topic, not something we've covered here on the show. And I immediately was like super interested, started diving down a rabbit hole, looking at presses, haven't pulled the trigger to actually order one yet, but I, I feel like it's probably going to happen now after reading your book. So yeah, I would love to know like what first got you, what drew you to that in the first place to, to wanting to learn about this and to make it part of your life and your homestead in the first place? Well, I've always been interested in learning how to produce the things at home that I would regularly just purchase from the store. 
you know, and of course that started with growing my own vegetables and uh, we grow some mushrooms, we tap maple trees, all that sort of thing. Your standard homesteady type of stuff. But, you know, it was just by pure chance that I'd stumbled across an advertisement for an oil press one time. A simple, you know, uh, turn screw style machine, just three parts, really, really basic piece of equipment. And I thought, well, I'd never heard of that either. I've never heard of anybody pressing their own oil. So I'm going to go ahead and give that a try. It's either a great idea or it's a terrible idea. Um, It's going to be one of the two. And it turns out, luckily, it was a wonderful idea. So we've been pressing seed and nut oils here at Small House Farm for almost a decade now. And we started with sunflower seeds was the very first uh, seed that we pressed. It's, you know, it's got a high oil content, certainly, but it's also just easy to grow in Michigan. It was easy to get my hands on some seeds. It was readily accessible, something that I had available to me. So just to tell you the story real quick, when we first got the oil press, we pressed up some oil, you know, it's a hand cranked mechanism. So we cranked it out and squeezed some seeds and and made some oil and I shared it with a friend of mine, you know, look, look what we did. You know, I was very excited about it. And she says, this is high quality oil, Bevan. This is probably something that you could offer this commercially once you, you know, fine tune the process. Well, that's all I needed to hear, you know. Um, so we hired an artist. She developed a label for us. We went and signed up for our first farmer's market ever. We set up a little table. I cranked and cranked oil all week. All week, you, I got like six or eight bottles of oil by the end of the week. You know, I was very new at it. But set up our table at the farmer's market, sold out in 20 minutes. It was awesome. You know, people love to support locally produced things, certainly uh, more and more every year. But And this was something at the market that the consumers hadn't seen before. So they really rallied around it and supported it. And uh, that support was all that I needed. I said, well, let's just keep keep going forward with this and see where it goes. And, um, you know, fast forward 10 years later, the cold press oils have become the foundation of everything that we do here at Small House. Um, we offer it, obviously, as culinary oils. We use it in our herbal products. Uh, we teach classes on it. And now I've written the book, The Complete Guide to Seed and Nut Oils, which is my way of taking all of the... Uh, all of the challenges and stumbles and mistakes that I've made in the last 10 years and flattening that out. So everybody else can start right where I'm at today, not having to make all the mistakes that I made in the last 10 years. Right. Well, as someone that I think is about to join you in this venture, I definitely appreciate getting like a decade's worth of trials and tribulations knocked out ahead for me. Um, That's pretty great. And like you, and I think like most homesteaders, you know, the idea of just always being on that quest to source or produce as much as I can of whatever I'm using here. And, you know, I make my own herbal products as well. And so growing my own herbs. And so the next step seemed to be, well, I do lots of infused oils and salves. And so I had started thinking about it. And a few years ago, a friend who thinks in a very similar manner, she had done some research to try to find any sort of type of olive tree that would actually grow in our climate here in Tennessee. And she actually, she ended up moving. So she gifted me two small olive trees. And I was really excited about this thinking like, okay, cool. Like I can possibly get my own oil someday. How cool would it be to be able to tell people, not only did I grow all the herbs for this, but I even produced the oil here locally in our own region as well. And then unfortunately, you know, I've now moved from that land as well. So kind of starting fresh here. And so looking at your book and seeing just the the other types of oils to possibly be able to produce, especially the sunflowers, that's something I already grow. We recently added Cooney Cooney pigs to our homestead. They eat the high oil black sunflower seeds as well. So I was already thinking, okay, we need to grow a lot more of these in order to source this directly and not have to buy it for the pigs. And now looking at it as, oh, now we could possibly also press this into oil too. It's just super cool. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, you said you started with the sunflower seeds. What other um, nuts and seeds have you started pressing? Any like favorites there? Anything that's surprised you maybe? 
Well, we've pressed a number of, of seed oils over the years, you know, some that we were just doing it to experiment with and it worked out well. So we've continued to do so. Um, like hemp seed has been a very popular one. We do flax seed oil, which works out really well. Pumpkin seed oil is a big one. We've moved into some nut oils. We sourced some almonds from a grower one year and pressed a lot of almond oil. We don't do that quite as much anymore. Uh, tree nuts are great though, because you, you can forage those. We do a lot of walnut oil. Yeah, I mean, that's a little more labor intensive, certainly um, the work to gather and, and clean these walnuts to get them ready for the press. But that oil that you can make, no, it's premium. And I think that it's really important to come back to what you were saying about using these oils in our herbal products. And one of the things that's made it so important to me as an herbalist, I've studied plants most of my life. And I'm very particular about, of course, the plants that I use in my herbal formulations. I'm very particular about the beeswax that I use. It comes from an apiary a mile and a half from here. It's made by the same bees that pollinate my garden, right? So the oils, that's an important part of that. And when we choose the oils that we use for our herbal formulations, we want to consider that they are made from plants as well, right? And they have certain attributes as well that can make our formulas better by choosing different oils to use in our formulas. So that's a great step forward. But when we can then produce those oils ourselves right here on our homestead, I grow the herbs, I, I know the bees, I press the oil, right? That's very, very important to me because in herbalism, I feel that everything is about relationships, right? Not just relationships with our clients, but relationships with our ingredients, our, our allies that we work with to make these products. So to me, a relationship with the oil is, is just as important as the relationship with the herbs. So like I said, it's really become the foundation of everything that we do here. Some oils work out better than others, of course, you know, pumpkin seed oil can be also very labor intensive to produce. You got it. It takes a lot of space. It's a lot of manual work to gather the seeds. The oil, though, is decadent. It's delicious, but it's something that I'm going to kind of be selfish and hoard for myself to use in my own kitchen. And we don't use that commercially. Um, the oils that are a little more, um, a little more productive, easier to produce. Again, sunflower oil, hemp seed. You're going to find those in a lot of small house products. I agree with you 100% about that relationship with the plants that we're using in our products. And so then, you know, down to things like the beeswax and the oil. You know, and I always, I've always talked to people about, you know, if you had the option of having an herbal product made with holy basil, Tulsi, that's grown thousands of miles away from you on another continent or grown, you know, by a grower in your region, you know, in the same state, county, however close you can get. It just feels very intuitive to go, well, yeah, I know which one I would prefer to have, right? Like I, I want something that comes from the same land that I'm living on every day, if that's at all possible. And so I think being able to take that next step and that extension of getting into the oils as well for products just makes so much sense, but maybe doesn't feel accessible to a lot of people. Like that's not something we see being talked about very often. And I think for most product makers, it's not something we're sourcing even locally or regionally necessarily. So I think finding folks like you who are small oil pressers and, and able to offer this commercially, you know, the more people popping up, you know, the better for all of us that we can either do it ourselves or find someone like yourself to purchase from. You talked about the kind of the trade-off there of, you know, you mentioned some things that you're sourcing from growers, like the almonds, and then some things that you're gathering yourself and that trade-off of labor, obviously being very intensive. What have y'all found work, works the best for you most, most of the time? Are you growing stuff, foraging stuff, sourcing from others or kind of a combo? It's really a combo of all those things. And it, it depends on a number of different factors, certainly. But for us, we've tried to strike this balance of being as involved as possible in either gathering or growing of the ingredients. But if we have to source our nuts or our seeds from somebody else, I am pretty particular about who we get our seeds and nuts from as well. Just like, you know, 
everybody wants to go to the farmer's market. Now they've started to realize the importance of knowing our farmers. When we're talking about produce, it's the same thing. I need to know my, my growers or my farmers or my gatherers that are bringing these seeds and nuts to small house farm for us. You know, I, again, coming back to that relationship, I think it's very, very important. We have to have the highest quality ingredients in everything that we do. Of course, for my family, that's what I want. But for all of our customers and everybody that enjoys our products, they deserve the best. So we really try to strive to develop these relationships with growers so we can source these ingredients whenever we need to do so. And to come back to why it's so important, I think just outside of just as ingredients in our formulations, but we can look at oils from a culinary standpoint, obviously as well, right? And these freshly pressed oils are so far superior to anything you're gonna be able to purchase. Um, you know, And this is just being really generous. And we could say that when you go to the grocery store to purchase oil off of the shelf, generously, we can say that's six months old. Yeah. Or older. And that's being really generous. It's usually typically much older than that. Um, right. There's been you, some really interesting articles and kind of exposés about specifically olive oils is what we're seeing most of the time being talked about. But you have to assume that that's going to extrapolate across the board to you know any oil that you're able to purchase in a grocery store. Like you said, shelf life, how long has it been sitting there? What was the quality of the ingredients to start with? Were those plants, you know, olives being sprayed? You know, just like there's so much there imagine how that compares, you know, not only quality wise, but then flavor wise to what you all are producing. It's, it's fresh, it's superior, you know, so I always try to recommend to folks that are just getting into oil pressing, um, that they're new to it, that to not be overwhelmed by it. Because if we think about how much oil we actually use, let's say in the kitchen, we use it in every meal, we're going to use some oil, probably whether we're sauteing something in a pan, making a salad dressing, but we're really only using a tablespoon or two at a time. It's really not that much. So it doesn't take much effort to really produce the oil that you need for a week's worth of use. And you can produce it by the week, only what you need for that week. So you get the freshest, freshest stuff. Um, because otherwise, if you're going to press a bunch in advance and hold on to it, it, you might as well just be buying it at that point, right? It's, it's much better to just in small batches, press exactly what you need as you go. Um, just to get that incredible flavor profile. And you know, the quality, not only of the, the seeds themselves and how they're being grown, but how the oil's being produced. When you buy oils at the grocery store, a lot of those oils are refined. They're heavily processed oils, right? They go through a bleaching, deodorizing, all sorts of, of process that goes into making these oils. At the end of the day, it's, it's, it's economically more sensible for these companies to use these chemical processes. They get more oil, it's cheaper to produce. Bottom line is their, their motivation here. But we don't want that. Uh, we want the most nutritious and delicious stuff is for our kitchen or for our apothecary. And we can produce that right at home. And it's really far easier than it may think. It's easy to be overwhelmed by a new task. And I remember, you know, I tell the story in the book when I was standing in the, the aisle at the grocery store looking at all of the oils for sale. It's overwhelming to think about what goes into making this, this, this wealth of incredible stuff at the grocery store. There's a lot that goes into that. But gosh, if we just break it down to what we use on our homes, it's actually very, very simple to do. Um, and we shouldn't be overwhelmed. A few baby steps is the beginning of a path that's going to change our lives. Really, you know, to put it, put it bluntly, um, just a few steps, a few changes in your life have such an impact on your existence as well as the existence of the people around you. Yeah, absolutely. I could not agree more. And 
So speaking of baby steps for people that are, you know, listening to this and are intrigued and maybe go out and get your book and then want to start taking those steps. You talked about how you've obviously had to upgrade your equipment to account for our selling some oil commercially now, you know, at market and everything. But for people that are just interested in maybe dipping their toe in here, starting to make oil just for home use, what kind of tools, what kind of investment are they looking at? It's pretty minimal, really. And, you know, we do get that into the into the book. We talk about that. But we started with a Pitaba brand oil press. And these are the most common. Everybody's going to be able to find a Pitaba press. And like I said, it's three pieces, essentially. It's the body, it's the screw, and it's the handle. That's all there is to it. Very, very simple. And that's all you need to get started. That's uh, We produced oil with our Pitaba machine for the first year or two. Hand cranked, that was all that needed to be done. Um, and if you're just looking to produce oil for at home, that's all that you need, right? You don't need to upgrade to any fancier machine than that. They're relatively inexpensive. Now I purchased mine, you know, 10 years ago and prices have certainly gone up on everything since then. But I believe that they're still relatively accessible for most people to get their hands on. One thing that I also touch on in the book that I think is very important, not only in oil production, but in all aspects of life is the importance of community working together right? Not everybody has all the resources to do all the things that they might want to do. But when we work together as a community, it's accessible to more people that way. So even if the Pitaba, which some of us may consider to be affordable, may not be affordable to others, that's okay. They can work together as a team and get one of these oil presses as a group. You can use that same machine. Everybody can share it. We can all press oil together. It's kind of fun that way. Yeah, definitely. I I think that's so important. And to me, you know, I started looking at the machine. My partner is very handy and makes lots of stuff. He was like, I think I could just make that. But it seemed not wildly unaffordable. I was like, okay, like we could probably play around with this. But like you said, the having that community aspect, you even mentioned, you know, a few minutes ago, gathering nuts and, and things like that. I know adjacent to us over in Western North Carolina, there's a whole like organization forming for various like nut growers who produce oils and things like that, where they're sharing, sharing equipment and, and processing and helping each other out during, you know, mast years and non-mast years and things like that. And it's like exactly what you said, speaking to that community aspect of it. And also it just makes it more fun. You get to kind of learn together, experiment. I know plenty of homesteaders maybe feel isolated out there, but like getting to know your neighbors and like being able to kind of share equipment back and forth is so key to like living this lifestyle, I think. Well, you know, there's this fallacy, this term that people use called self-sufficiency. And I think that it creates like a mental trap for folks where they do start to believe that if they're not doing it all by themselves, that they're mm-hmm. not doing it right. And, and I think that there's nothing could be farther from the truth. I think we, far, we do far better working together as a community um, in everything that we do. And like you said, it, it is also a lot more fun, but it's a lot more productive. You can get a lot more nuts gathered in a group having a good time than you can all by your lonesome out in the woods, you know? So being able to, to let go of that need to do everything yourself and just allow this community building to happen. It's some of the most important stuff that we can do. What homesteaders are doing, learning how to grow their own food, learning how to provide for themselves, gather and clean their own water, whatever it might be, these are all important things, but they're important things for a community, right? So we can share our knowledge, share our experience, share our challenges, learn from each other. Like you said, that's the best thing that we can do in anything. Yeah. Literally right now, while I'm recording this with you, my partner is working with our neighbor from across the street. They're working on like a BCS that our neighbor has that he's been loaning to us to use out in the garden with like a wood chipper attachment and stuff. You know, it's just like, yeah, things that we're not able to afford right now, but we can like 
borrow his and in, you know, in return, we do some upkeep and maintenance on it and make it run, run a little better overall when we give it back. You know, and just like things like that, I think are, are so key and people are like so hospitable. Um, found someone on Marketplace a few weeks ago, we went and bought, bought something from them used. And like, while we're there, we started talking about herbs and stuff before I know it, she's pulled me into her pantry. She's pulling out, like she collects like local honey and she's pulling out different wines that they've made and ferments and stuff. And I'm like, this is the stuff I live for. Like that feeling of community. And like, you know, she sent me home with like a jar of stuff she'd made, you know, just like, awesome. that's the stuff I love about, about this life. Yeah, oh, for sure. You know, um, what, what's the expression? No man is an island unto himself. Right. And I think that I try to remind myself of that every day. You know, I'm very driven. We're always trying to do the next thing. What's going to be next for us, but slowing down and remembering that we're all in this together. That's, that's, that's a reminder. I always, always try to keep top of mind for sure. Yeah, definitely. So getting back to the oils, can you talk maybe a little bit about what's like a favorite oil right now? Like I'm guessing you guys, especially with the things that you're foraging yourself, you kind of has have seasons of like oils that you're pressing. So like right now, like what's kind of in season or, or what are you cooking with in the kitchen? Well, you know, right now there's not a lot in season at the moment for what we're doing here, but that seasonality of the oils is really nice. Not only just for the different flavors that it brings to the kitchen, but also the different aspects that it brings to our herbal products, being able to stay seasonal along with the herbs that we're, we're growing together mm-hmm. as well. I think that that's very important. Um, right now, um, we're just coming into spring, so we're getting around to planting season. So really the, the oil that we're using the most of still is sunflower oil. Okay. Um, that's something that we're just able to produce in such a quantity. And here in Michigan, even if we need to source it, it's just readily available everywhere. Um, so we have quite a bit of sunflower seed. And that's pretty much our, our main oil to get through through the season. Um, in the kitchen, again, as in the apothecary, we use a lot of sunflower oil. I like to use sunflower oil in topical applications. Um, mm-hmm. The viscosity of it's very nice. Uh, the vitamin E content of the oil is really good. It, it not only is great for the skin, but it acts well as a preservative too. So it's really my go-to for so many different things. Hemp seed would probably be the number two. Um, By this time of year, we're using hemp seed mostly in topical products that we're crafting. We have smaller quantities of that. So we try to get, you know, more bang for a buck, more per ounce out of it. So infusing at herbs to make topical products seems to be uh, the main focus of what's happening here this time of year, at least. Yeah. Nice. What are you looking most forward to at, you know, I love asking growers as we head into spring, you know, there's always kind of some new thing we're trying this year. Maybe is there anything you're excited about or looking forward to doing this spring? There is. So this year, one thing that I'm I'm trying that's a little bit new to me is um, I've gathered seeds for a bunch of different varieties of pumpkins that have hullless seeds. Now, originally there was just the one hullless seed um, that was developed specifically for oil production, but they've in years, in the recent years, developed a number of them. I've probably, I think I have 10 different varieties right now. Uh, So we're going to grow them out and kind of trial them just to see how well they produce for us here in Michigan, what kind of oil content we're going to get out of the seeds, just trial them to see what's going to be the best for us. But what I'm the most excited about is some of them in the advertising for the seeds, at least the blurbs and the seed catalogs, claim that the pumpkins themselves are also delicious. And I'm very excited about that because what I found in a lot of these hullless seeded varieties that have been bred specifically for this trait, that they've lost that flavor component. They're very bland, they're very boring. They're not really pumpkins that you wanna eat. And if we can find a pumpkin that is delicious and gives me these high oil content seeds, that's a winner for sure because then it becomes dual purpose. I have very limited space, I have very limited time. And the more that I can stack these functions to get more out of my space and more out of my labor, um, the better. So I'm really excited about that. That's um, probably, that's the first thing that comes to mind is the most exciting thing that's going to happen here at Small House this year. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Anytime we talk about fun function stacking, I'm like all about it. So yeah, the thought of just, I know how space intensive it is to grow pumpkins and you know, it's a long cycle. And so you're giving up a lot of room for that. And so it just, it feels a little heartbreaking to know that then at the end of the day, you're, you're growing either for seeds or for flavor and to eat. So yeah, if you can get best of both worlds, that's definitely a, a huge step forward there. <laughs> sure. Now the pumpkins, the, those bland pumpkins don't go to waste, you know, Right. Um, chickens and pigs certainly enjoy them. So there's a purpose to them, but chickens and pigs also enjoy delicious pumpkins. So if I could get that too, for me, that would be a win. But you know, when you press these seeds for their oil and you extract the oil from them, what remains, the seed cake is, is what's left over, is also incredibly useful. I, I immediately thought of it when you mentioned the pigs that you had there. When you press your sunflower seeds to get the oil from them for yourself, all of that seed cake that's left over, your pigs are going to love it. It's going to be a great treat for them, for sure. So, you know, there's no waste. We're stacking functions again. These seeds can give us so many gifts. That's awesome. Great to know, because the more I talk about it, the more I'm almost completely through your book now and just know, yeah, I'm probably just going to end up jumping into this really soon this year. So you talked about community. I'm just kind of wondering for oil pressing, have you kind of networked with people either locally or just like through the internet? Is there kind of like a community out there for you guys to like share resources or do you feel like you're kind of stumbling along on your own for the most part here? You know, there's a few people that I found um, through the internet that are involved in similar things that I'm doing. I've yet to find, you know, an online community of any sort that's doing that. Although I have joined some Facebook groups for uh, edible tree nut um, growers and that sort of thing. And they're certainly interested in the, the oil component of what we're doing. So we get to have some conversations there, which is fun. But we're kind of just like-minded folks scattered about around the country. What we're doing here is certainly not unique, but it's it's relatively new enough in the homesteading movement that there's not a lot of it happening yet. So my ultimate hope here is that the book is going to help inspire far more people to get involved in, in doing this. More people should be doing it. To, to put it simply, it, it's there's no reason not to be. It's relatively simple. It's just realizing that it's something that we can do. You know, like you had mentioned, this is just not even a topic you've had on your show yet. It's just kind of a new conversation to have. So hopefully this book's going to be the impetus to change that. And we're going to be having a lot more conversations about this in the future. Yeah, I definitely hope so. And and so I hope people, you know, whether they're just listening to this episode or come across your books, you know, organically some other way that and grab a friend. You know, there's nothing better than like learning something new and building that little community and get three other friends and pitch in and get that first press together or something and make a party out of it, you know. Make a party out of it. We took our pitable press after I realized that I was never gonna physically keep up uh with hand cranking that thing. And uh, we rigged it up to a bicycle to make it bicycle powered. Um, which makes it super fun. And now friends can come over, they'll ride the bike. They think it's, you know, how fun for them. And, you know, they're doing work at the same time. I put my kids on it. Everybody loves it. We're taking it on the road. We're taking it to the mother news fair so people can see the bicycle powered oil press. It's, it's really takes something that could be difficult, especially for over a long time, hand cranking something and making it easy, good exercise, lots of fun. And in the book, I walk you through step-by-step how to turn your Pitaba oil press into a pedal powered machine as well. That's so cool. You mentioned your kids and you mentioned in your, your intro at, at the top there about some projects that you've got going on. Can we talk more about those? I'd, I'd love to hear more about just like the different types of seeds you're stewarding and just everything going on there. Um, I know also you're involved with like a seed library. So let's, let's jump into that too. Well, outside of the oil press, I'm up to my elbows in seeds. Most certainly um, we do a lot of seed preservation work here at the farm. 
Uh, we grow um, old historic varieties that we're able to get our hands on. Um, like for example, one squash I've been talking about lately, we have a squash that is said to have been grown by Abraham Lincoln. Whoa. Now, yeah, I know. Can you prove it? Eh, I don't know, but, yeah, but you know, it's cool. We've, it's cool. We've worked with some folks at Abraham Lincoln's boyhood museum where they've got some written records and where they have a, a garden down there that they grow stuff. And we found written records describing a squash that word for word describes the squash that we have in our collection. So that's pretty exciting stuff, you know? So that's kind of a fun thing that we grow. So we like to collect seeds that have more direct stories though. I spend a lot of time on the road visiting folks, seed swaps and that sort of thing, and meeting the people that keep these seeds. And I love seed stories, but I love the stories of the people that keep the seeds. Just absolutely, it's just a, such a fascinating group of people um, that have taken the time to steward these varieties and they've been passed down through their families for generations. And it, it's just, there's so much history tied up inside of a seed, more than just the history of the seed itself, but all of the meals that it's made, all of the people that have grown it, all the places that it's been. Um, I just get so excited about the stories inside of our seeds. So we spend a lot of our time doing that, but we also look to the future with new things. Um, my son, Elijah, like we mentioned, has been breeding a popcorn um, that he's been very excited about. Corn's fun to breed because it's easily cross-pollinated and you can see the effects of cross-pollination immediately in that next generation. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, he started with, he had a, a blue popcorn and a red popcorn. And he thought, oh, dad, you know, he was what, maybe nine years old. He said, dad, if I cross-pollinate these two corns, I might get purple popcorn. And I was like, you might, let's try it. Let's you know? So he got it to, well, let's see what happens. So he did that. And sure enough, he got some with purples. He got pinks. He got all these beautiful colors. So he selected the ones that he enjoyed. The next year he said, oh, I wish that these were bigger. So he had found a large cob, a very large white popcorn. And he said, what if I mix this in? Maybe it'll make my corn bigger. Well, sure enough, now he's got big cobs of purple corn. It's, he's not a scientist by it, but he's just fascinated with these genetics. And he's just a little kid and he's out there working in the garden. So it's a win all the way around. You know what I mean, Sarah? Um, <laughs> it's pretty cool stuff. So anything that I can do to get the kids excited out in the garden, I think is really important. I grew up in an apartment. We didn't have a garden or anything like that. So to become the person that I am today was, there was a lot of, a lot of change, a lot of challenge, a lot of having to 180 the way that I think about a lot of things in the world. So to introduce my kids to the wonders of the soil from the moment they were born is some of the most important work that I'm going to do, really. That's beautiful. And I'm just picturing Elijah like at the farmer's market a year or two from now, like being able to be like, here's purple popcorn. And that's okay. So wait, cool. let me tell that story. Okay. Oh, okay. So, so Elijah had gotten some Oneida white corn. Um, it's a flower corn from the Oneida people. And he'd gotten he probably had about a half a bushel of it total harvest, you know, so not a lot, but we've got an old stone mill. So we ground it into cornmeal, right? And took it to the farmer's market with me one day, set up his own little table next to mine to sell his cornmeal. And he was certainly using the cute factor in his sales pitch, you know, he's adorable, right? And he was selling his cornmeal for $10 a pound, which is high end stuff. Kid cleaned up, sold out. He made more money at the farmer's market that day than I did, right? <laughs> Pretty cool. I love it. Yeah. I mean, and you know, the cute factor aside, it's still though, when you go to a market, kind of like the first time you guys showed up with oils, people are like, we haven't seen this before. You know, it's like, there is a factor of that as well. You know, it's like, you can go to plenty of markets and walk around and you're like, oh, kale's in season. Everyone has kale, you know, it's like, but who has that? I remember go going to a market mm, two or three years ago where they weren't doing oils, but they were doing uh, syrups. I think there was birch, walnut things, you know, not maple syrup, you know, other trees that they were selling. Right. 
products from. And I'm like, haven't, you know, I went home with one of everything because I wanted to try it all. So yeah, I think that's huge. And you know, the cute factor aside, you know, he obviously has a, a keen interest in this. And I think as a parent, like what more can you ask for or be excited about than the fact that he's wanting to take that initiative and, and to be out in the garden too. Like that's the dream. I, I know so many homesteaders you know, where they're, it's like pulling teeth to try to get the kids to go outside. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm blessed with that. Um, but I've encouraged his participation right from the get go. You know, I was just looking at some old pictures from past birthdays and for his fifth birthday, he got a shovel and a hoe, you know, and you should have seen how excited this kid was about his shovel and hoe. Um, he was right into it. You know, I always try to take him places with us. You know, we're going down to Kentucky um, here in a little bit for the big seed swap down there. Elijah's coming with me. I'll take him to Decorah, Iowa. The Seed Savers Exchange does that annual conference. I take Elijah to it. He's a regular at that now. He, he gets he gets really excited. He likes to be involved in it. And like I said, that's probably the most important thing I can do is to get him and his brother interested in this sort of thing. Imagine, imagine where they're going to take this. They're going to take the little bit that I'm able to teach them. They're going to grow expound upon that. And they're going to do big things in this world, I think. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, cool. yeah. The saying about, you know, we plant the seed for a tree that we won't get to sit under. I mean, what else, what else are you doing right now? You know, that's such important work. And just thinking from my perspective about what you're saying about, yeah, he's going to go to the big seed swap in Kentucky and going to go to the seed savers. And I'm like, man, I want to go to all that stuff. <laughs> like, I wish I'd gotten to do stuff like that at his age or even, you know, 10 years ago. So, Oh, absolutely. You know, so, so that's how I know that I think that I'm doing the right thing with him. Um, and I'm giving him the space to kind of make his own choices with stuff. You know, he wants to breed popcorn. I'll let him have the space in the garden and space is, uh, you know, a prime commodity around here, but it's let's let it happen. And hopefully it turns out to be good popcorn in the end, but either way, it's a learning experience, you know? Planting the seeds of trees will never sit under the shade. That's such a great expression, Sarah. That's pretty cool. Um, and that kind of makes me think of the seed library work that we do. So in 2017, we founded the Michigan Seed Library Network. It's an umbrella organization uh, over the many, many seed libraries that we have here in Michigan. When we got started with this program back in 2017, there was 20 something seed libraries in Michigan and I'd worked with them all very intently, going to visit them, helping them get established, this sort of thing. And what I realized was that I was answering the same questions in every community. It was the same questions. And I thought, boy, there's got to be a more efficient way to do this. What if we created a hub of information where all these folks that have a seed library, interested in the seed library, can come, find the answers to their questions, connect with other like-minded people in their communities, and really get the seed library movement, you know, moving. And uh, well, Fast forward now to present day, Michigan is home to 125 seed libraries now. Whoa. So that's in five years, you've gone from 20 to, to 125. Whoa. Amazing. Yeah, that, that, that is amazing. That makes my heart so happy. <laughs> to put it in perspective, they say um, that there's around 600 seed libraries nationwide. 125 over here in Michigan now. You know, it's, it's pretty cool stuff. Now they all operate independently of themselves. You know, they all have different needs in their communities, different resources, whatever. Um, so they, they do their own thing sort of, but we, the, the network works, like I said, as an umbrella to kind of, as a hub for them to come together, to share ideas, to share resources. Educational programming has been a big part of what we offer now. We do a, a seed library and summit every year where all the seed librarians can come together. We used to do it in person. Um, the last couple of years, it's been virtual, but that actually worked out really nice because, I mean, Michigan's a big state, I suppose, right. <laughs> when you think about how far it takes to drive from one side to the next. And so this made it more accessible 
to, to the librarian so more people could join us from different places, which was actually really, really nice. The silver lining, I suppose, to having to be virtual was that we could be more inclusive. And it offers these opportunities, again, for these educational programs that we can put out virtually. We have had speakers in, we've done seed saving workshops, that sort of thing. Because at the end of the day, the only way to make these programs work is through participation with the community. And the only way to get the community to participate is through educational programming, to help them understand how they can participate the best to make the seed library function. People are really far removed from their food. Uh, you know, as you know, a lot of people don't know how food grows or where it comes from. So then when we start to, to have the conversation about seed saving, that's even one step further away from their comfort zone. You know, so there's a lot of educational components that have to go into this to make it work. But working together as a community through the Seed Library Network, we've been able to succeed. We've really achieved a lot of great things. And I'm excited to see what we can pull off in the next five years. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible that you all in one state out of 50 have that high percentage of all the libraries in the country. That's amazing. That just gives me so much hope. And just in Nashville, where I was living up until recently, the public library system there has had an initiative for the past few years where they have a seed, a little seed library. It's like a little card catalog in, in every library branch and they're doing workshops and, and just so much. And so, but the thought of having 125 organizations like that in our state is just like mind blowing to think about the impact and how many different people you'd be able to interact with in a given year. And so, and like you said, having that umbrella network now so that you're not, so that when people do decide, oh, hey, I want to start a seed library, you're not reinventing the wheel, you know, having those, those resources to give to people, um, you know, think about like Herbalists Without Borders, you know, that they have all those resources for people that, you know, in the same way, or maybe wherever they are interested in like setting up like a free clinic or, or something for people to have those resources. So you're not reinventing the wheel every time you try to tackle this and you can just get to the good part where you're helping people or connecting people with seeds. And, and yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine a year from now what, what that's going to look like for y'all. You know what? I, I'm excited about it because just last week I was at the opening of a seed library. I'm going to one this week. I'm going to two more next week. Um, so yeah, it's, it's exciting stuff. So a year from now, who knows where we're going to be at, but it came down to the, the importance of this network like you said, not reinventing that wheel to make those resources available to everybody so they can kind of get the pieces that they need to make it work in their community. And we can, uh, well, we can plant some seeds, right? Make some magic. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's why the podcast is called Tending Seeds. I think, you know, it applies to a lot of different things and, you know, kind of like your book, hopefully being a seed that gets planted for people to kind of, you know, spread this, this interest in, you know, seed and nut oil pressing that who, who knows a year from now, there might be people all over popping up that have started doing this, have little cooperatives to share tools and resources or to even source, you know, large amounts of seeds and nuts together. Cause obviously ordering things like that at, at bigger volumes makes it more accessible financially. I really liked what you said about how homesteading, we always have this, this idea of being remote and off grid and we don't talk to anyone and we just oh, live in the mountain and totally self-sufficient. It's like the reality of that is really just, just not there. And I think you have to, you have to live that life long enough to, to really understand, actually, this is a lot more fun <laughs> and a lot more doable if I would like reach out and get to know my neighbors, maybe. Well, absolutely. You know, and I think it, it takes some of the pressure off when you have this opportunity to interact with others and see, oh, they're having the same troubles. They've made the same mistakes. They, you know, or we can learn from each other. And I think that it's so important to, to have access to the knowledge of our community, especially our ancestors, the people that have already done this before us. None of us are doing anything that hasn't been done before. 
Um, it's all been done before and it's been done way better than we're doing it. That's just the facts, you know? So if we can just kind of let go of our ego a little bit sometimes and, and be willing to accept that outside knowledge, I think that it would make our journey a lot more, a lot more enjoyable. Absolutely. Well, Bevan, I want to be respectful of your time. I know this time of year, we all have plenty we need to be doing outside prepping for spring. Before we go, do you want to tell people where they can find you, connect with you, anything you want to kind of plug anywhere you're going to be speaking that maybe local people can find you or anything like that? Sure. Um, if folks are interested in my speaking schedule, um, if they're interested in any of my books, The Complete Guide to Seed and Nut Oils, The Artisan Herbalist, Saving Our Seeds, any of our titles, our herbal products, our social media accounts, any way that you want to connect with me for any reason, smallhousefarm.com. That's the website you want to visit. Awesome. And we'll make sure to link all that up links to the books and stuff as well and and where you can get everything. And just thank you so much for your time. I really hope that our listeners that this will inspire them and hopefully start a spark to uh, maybe get, get an oil press and maybe start a seed library wherever they are. I sure hope so too, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you. All right. I don't know about you, but I am feeling really excited to get my own press now so that I can start making my own oils. I think Bevan's book is going to be a great resource as I dive into this new adventure, and I'm also feeling so inspired to hear his story about the growth of so many different seed libraries up there in Michigan. Can you imagine if every state had that many seed libraries popping up in its communities? As Bevan mentioned, you can check out his website, Small House Farm, for his books, as well as seeds, oils, and much more. I'll have that link for you in the show notes. If you want to support the show, Please check out the farm store over on foxandelder.com. We're adding new teas and herbal products pretty regularly right now because farming and foraging is picking up for the year. So lots of new things to offer y'all. We appreciate your support so much. It lets us carve out the time to keep this podcast going, doing interviews and making new episodes. Make sure to subscribe wherever you're listening so that you can get notified of new episodes as they come out and maybe even pass us on and forward it to a friend or two as well. We appreciate that a ton. In addition to foxandelder.com, you can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. We'll be back soon with more new episodes for you. Until then, keep your hands dirty and your heart open. Mm -hmm.